0: spatial information is just ubiquitous. It's, it's there, right? It's, it's part of the analysis. It's part of everything they do for the most part, even with life insurance policies and cyber insurance. But it's not really, seen, it, until I bring it up to a map, it's not really seen as geospatial information. It's just seen as another data source to run, to run analysis on.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Mapscaping podcast. My name is Daniel and this is a podcast for the geospatial community. In just a minute, you're going to hear a conversation between myself and Todd Barr. Todd has been in the geospatial industry for a while now. He's worked in a bunch of different verticals, and he has a ton of experience. So today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about skills, we're going to be talking about leadership, mentorship, and diversity in the geospatial community. Just before we get started on the podcast episode today, a big thank you to my sponsor, Pictera. Pictera is a geospatial platform that lets you build your own object detection algorithms. So what this looks like is you have your data, some satellite imagery, some drone imagery, some aerial imagery, and you create the training model for these algorithms. So you go and find the objects that you're interested in detecting draw polygons around those objects, and the platform will do the rest for you. So this works on a a bunch of different imagery sources, and Pictera have actually put together a free downloadable guide to Earth observation data and satellite imagery sources that that you can use to help you find an imagery source that's going to meet your needs. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but if this sounds like something that you might be interested in, check out pictera.ch. Welcome to the podcast, Todd. Thanks so much for taking the time. This is the third time round, so I really hope that, <laughs> that third time is the lucky one for us.
0: Yeah, technical difficulties, right?
1: You've been involved in the geospatial industry for quite some time now. You've had different positions in different verticals. You've been involved in mentorship, and you have some really interesting opinions and views around the community itself. So I want there's a, there's a lot to talk about. I think before we get started, perhaps it's a really good idea if you could just walk the listeners through how you got involved in geospatial and, and then we'll sort of move on through your career path from there.
0: Well, I was an economic analyst at a, a nonprofit in Washington, D.C. in the late 90s. And we had a USAID project tracking HIV AIDS in Africa. And they wanted to do spatial kind analysis. My boss knew that I knew how to code, but I wasn't a coder, I was an analyst. But my mentor popped in and said, hey, we're going to send you to New York for a couple of weeks to learn this GIS stuff. You know, this is 99 before anybody really knew about it. So I went to New York, came back, we ran the analytics. We looked for other things after, after we did that project, we looked for other things to add it to, right? Cause Elvis liked it. I liked it because you could see when you, you know, when you look at your numbers or you look at like a, a pie chart or a, or a line graph, but when you saw the numbers on the map, right, it wasn't an active map. It wasn't an interactive map. It was just a, a PDF. But It was like, Oh my God, this is, this is really powerful stuff. And so we looked for other projects, and at that time, there wasn't a lot there. After, you know, that was like 2000, 2001. And then I was still in D.C. at the time, and after 9-11, if you knew GIS and you're an American citizen, you kind of got swept up into the intelligence community and, and the defense and intelligence community. And I started doing work with um, some work with the DOD, a lot of work with the, with the District of Columbia's Emergency Management Agency, as well as FEMA and uh, fledgling Homeland security at the time. And from there, I worked uh, as a very small, it, it, we call they're called 8A firms in the Federal contracting binocular. And then we did some work, I did some contracts there. Then I moved to a larger architecture and engineering firm. We worked with um, the Operation Iraqi Liberation, the Gulf War. And then around 2005, I moved, I was given a, a quick project after right after Katrina. I flew down the day after the storm hit. The company at the time had the, um, at the contract for the sewer system within the, the New Orleans, they just tossed me down there. I ended up spending six months out in Louisiana doing all sorts of mapping and all sorts of building applications, to running analytics, briefing people in rooms. It was Katrina was really kind of a, a watershed moment because I saw the power of geospatial and the power of community at the same time. And then after that, I moved on to I built the National Guard Bureau situational awareness application. It was a baseline BI thing at first, and we and I was brought in to, to add geospatial to it. And then about a year ago, 15 months ago, I moved to Boston to be a, a, the director for a, a nat, natural catastrophe modeling firm, and I'm the geospatial director there. So that's kind of my, uh, my career in a nutshell.
1: Yeah, thanks for that. There's a lot to take in. It sounds like you've worked in a bunch of different verticals. What's it like moving b- between different verticals? Because a lot of times in geospatial, we say yeah that's great you've got geospatial understanding geospatial skills that that's awesome but you also need some level of you know subject expertise has that been a problem for you moving between these different verticals
0: at the beginning no right cuz when you jump from transportation to intelligence or transportation to emergency management or even like you know some USGS ecological stuff it was easy before like 2012 2015 because geo was just kind of everybody was, excited about it. It was really neat. And people weren't very spatially aware at the time. So we were able to go through and go, oh yeah, we're going to build this application for you. And this is how it's going to work. After some time though, you required an SME to help guide you, right? Unless you did a deep dive into the subject matter for like a year beforehand, because your clients became spatially aware and they were asking harder questions. It wasn't just put this on a map. It was run these analytics and make this and you know, add this to our BI system or Run these analytics that are really in depth and really require a knowledge of the uh, the vertical you're in. So there's this whole reframing of your um, of your skill set. You know, we work for natural catastrophe firm. We work with the insurance industry, and I've had to learn do a deep dive into the insurance industry. And I've been and it's a large, complex industry, and I'm still not there yet. And I'm really learning how geo fits with the other aspects of the of the, of the uh, insurance industry, financial modeling, detailed loss analysis, risk modeling and how geo fits into that as a, as a as a line of business.
1: So earlier on, you talked about one of your previous experience in, in your geospatial career has been working with a BI system, I think you call it, so a business intelligence system, and you talked about geospatial as being an add-on to that. Do you still see that happening today? Are we still thinking about geospatial as something separate? from the thing that we were already doing or is it more natively integrated? So when you think about insurance, for example, do they think about geospatial as like this this extra package that we pull in from time to time or is it just integrated into what they're doing?
0: So insurance is interesting because everything in insurance is localized, right? It's all location intelligence. So it's all just spatial information is just ubiquitous. It's it's there, right? It's It's part of the analysis. It's part of everything they do for the most part even with life insurance policies and cyber insurance. But it's not really, see, it, until I bring it up to a map, it's not really seen as geospatial information. It's just seen as another data source to run, to run analysis on. Geo, and this is kind of across the spectrum, with a lot of the BI tools with Tableau integrating it and, and Salesforce picking them up, there's, I think, I believe that spatial and geospatial is, just completely, is becoming more ubiquitous within the systems. It's just becoming another aspect of analytics, less so... Oh, neat, it's on a map. It's like now, now a map is expected, right? And it's just geospatial information is there and it's always been there. It's ambient almost. And, and we really have to push to bring it up, up to the surface and show this is what we're doing and this is the process for that. Otherwise, it's just expected.
1: It, it almost sounds like geospatial is being commoditized, right? So it's built into these systems. It's expected. What, what do you think that means for people working in the industry? I, I think you, right at the start, you talked about, you know, back in the day, we just put data on a map and people were blown away. And, and now the expectations are much higher. Can you give me an idea of what these sort of increased ex- expectations are, are meaning for people in the industry in terms of their, their skills?
0: As far as skills go, it requires that makes geospatial people or geospatial experts, let's say, they have to have a wider variety of skills. They have to understand, they have to link with other systems to understand those other systems. They have to understand Tableau. It's no longer just knowing your desktop application or knowing a server application how is that going to interface with, with, with other systems and how it, uh, it becomes integrated to the greater enterprise system, right? So an understanding of, of not just spatial Python or, or ArcPy, but actual, actual, an understanding of raw Python, understanding of R, understanding of some .NET libraries and being able to integrate that with other systems and having that baseline knowledge and understanding of the data sources and the databases and how all that fits together within the greater enterprise system and where your place is. And that's where professionals are going to have to really push themselves and like bring geospatial to the forefront. Because I mean, where I work right now, geospatial is very is very ubiquitous. We have GIS analysts and we have other and we have scientists, and they're just it's not as jazzy, let's say, as it was before. It's just expected now.
1: How would I document that in my CV? How would I tell that story that you're talking about that I understand that geospatial, that these clump of skills that I have here fit into the bigger picture in, in this way? I'm assuming you're involved in some hiring decisions now that you've reached this level in your career. So how would you document it? And perhaps could you explain how you see other people documenting it in their in their CVs when they're applying for jobs?
0: So the way I do it when I'm applying for a position, I make it into a story. I describe, it's an analyst, that's soup to nuts. It's collecting the data collecting the collecting the requirements running the analytics putting together the application and then maintaining the application and just talking about it and how we decided to go with open source opposed to opposed to an Esri solution or we decided to go with Azure solution over an open source solution because of these reasons and this is the analysis we ran through you know this is how we built the application this is how we collected requirements and this is the this is business problem it solves so for me i always i don't dive into the technical details as much because you can really get lost in the technical details especially in a CV or in an interview and in an interview, you don't want to spend 45 minutes describing what libraries you're using in Python or what exact code you're writing. You want to like give them a high give them a high level perspective that you understand what's going on. And kind of reversing that when I'm sitting on the other side of the table and uh doing an interview, I really look for people who are who are confident in what they're doing. And they have to project that, right? A lot of people know desktop applications, a lot of people know code, a lot of people know databases. But when they come into an interview, they don't they can't really articulate that and they can't really push that forward. And I interview a lot of client facing individuals and they need to be able to go to the client and project that confidence and say, yes, I know your problem. I have your problem. You don't have to worry about this anymore. I've got you. I can, I can test people for code. I can test people for, for desktop applications or databases or whatever, but you can't test for confidence until you interact with the person, right? For me, I always look for confidence and the capability to tell a story. And that's really what I look for in a, in a candidate for any position i, I hire for.
1: I think that makes perfect sense. That that ability to communicate, that the value that you're bringing, and put it in a bigger perspective. I think it's really important. If you had to say like there was one skill that that GIS people need to have, or, or maybe a particular set of skills, is there anything you'd be looking for in particular? If I was coming to you and looking for an entry level position, and and for me, entry level positions are usually about those hard skills. What do you think you would be looking for, or most interested in in seeing?
0: From a hard skill set, I would definitely look for someone who understands SQL, someone who understands a desktop application. They don't have to be an expert in it, obviously. Either QGIS, ArcGIS, or, or Arc Desktop, or ERDAS. Someone who's willing to learn—that's the—that's the, that's really a hard skill, right? But that's always something that I'm always looking for: someone who's excited about this, excited about making a map, excited about making data stories. But really, it'd be SQL to understand the databases and understand data structures. Some sort of scripting language, Python, R, or maybe even .NET or C Sharp. And then an understanding of the applica- of the uh, of the desktop applications we use. Everything else, a lot of, else of that stuff can be trained, right? And a lot of training happens on the job. You can go through a university program and get this, you know, the step-by-step tutorials on how to do things. But it's not until you're out in the field when you have to do documentation and other stuff that the rubber roll really hits the road. And, and finding someone who has those baseline hard skills, who is also confident enough that they can say to themselves, I can do this. I can go through this process. That's, that's really the key.
1: How important is certification for you when, when you're looking at a, um, a potential employee, someone who's got a certificate in X, Y, and Z versus the other person who's, who's built a project who's and can document the journey and said, hey, here was the problem. I solved it like this. And, and you sort of almost imply experience based on that.
0: I take experience for someone who's just fiddled around with stuff with, the, with a decent GitHub over certification any day of the week because you can... Understand the testing and understand the process because tests don't have bad data. Tests don't have uh, security issues with with your servers. Uh, you you can't test for someone to figure out or, or certification test to go through and figure out why my data is dirty. Is it the date or whatever it is? Right. That's diff- that's difficult to do within a test. But if someone's gone through a project, even just a, like a side project they wanted to put together. Someone wanted to figure out how to where the parking zones were in their city or whatever. That person's gone through clean data, put it on a server, put it on a map. And if someone does certification, that's great. You studied for an exam, and now you have to learn how to do stuff in the real world.
1: You started off, as as most people do, as a, a technical expert in, in this space, in, in the geospatial industry. And now you've moved through to more of a, a leadership role. Was it difficult for you to sort of give up those technical reins to sort of get out of the machine room and and start thinking about this in a more strategic perspective?
0: Very much so. When I first became a program manager back in I think twenty eleven, it was like all aboard the Todd train, right? I was doing everything. I was writing the code, I was doing the analytics, I was doing exactly what I was doing as like a senior developer, senior analyst. I it was difficult for me to let go of that. It was almost impossible actually. And then personal event happened. I got I I, I was awarded primary physical custody of my daughter. As I parented, I realized what I was doing wrong as a manager. I wasn't growing the people. I was doing it all for them and handing off like excess work, but I wasn't allowing them to succeed. I wasn't allowing them to learn. I wasn't allowing my team to grow because I was too busy controlling everything. So I had to really let go of that. It it became less about me having the latest and greatest technical skills as much as me growing a garden of individuals and growing their skills, allowing them to flourish, allowing them to be the rock stars, allowing them to do the things that they needed to do to grow their careers as as a manager or as any kind of leader you have to put them first the troops always go first their skill sets their needs their career is more important than yours at that point because you've established yourself you have these skills you have these things you know you can do them they're not there yet and your job isn't to use them as support it's your job to support them and make them the best person they can be and for them to reach their full potential
1: how do you find out where they're they're trying to get to like we're, what we're talking about here at least the way I understand it, is helping people get to wherever it is that they want to go. How do you understand where they want to go?
0: You just have to communicate with them, right? You have to be open and honest and talk to them about their strengths and weaknesses, talk to them about what they want to do, and then sit down with them, come up with a game plan. They really have to understand who they are, though. There are some people who really want to go into management, really want to lead teams, but they really don't have the capability to stand in front of an audience of 800 people and give a presentation of what the project is. Their EQ isn't, isn't where it should be. And other people who want to be good, want to just, just be rockstar coders, right? They have the skill sets, but they don't see a path forward past being a senior developer, or a senior analyst. So it's your job to figure out how they can continue to progress as they are and with what, what their desires are, but not shift them into management, keep them like, as high in technical experts or figure out ways they can also contribute outside of the technical part. But a lot of times technical people are stymied that way. And it requires a lot of a lot of legwork and just a lot of discussions with them coming to you with questions, and you being able to ask them honestly about what the situation is and where they should be and how they're going.
1: So I had planned in this conversation to sort of move off and talk about mentoring. But when I hear you talk about leadership in this way, it sounds like there's a huge crossover between leadership and, and mentoring. Do you sort of distinguish any differences between those two things or is it just one and the same? To me, it's one and the
0: same. As a leader, you're always mentoring people. You're always you should be communicating with your team. I mean, you know, we're supposed to communicate with our team once a quarter. I talk about stuff with my team at least once a month, individually. Not just not just my product owners, but also my developers and my database experts and and you know and even the even you know, couple people who are a couple months in for GIS analyst. I've tried to guide them and say, This is what pathway do you want to go and how do you want to get there? And that communication and that feedback that I get from them about how they're doing is also feedback on how i'm doing. Do they see a future here? Am i the leader they need? Or do i need to adjust to make your job easier or to make your career better? The running joke i always have is i'm in the third act of my career as i'm, you know, i, I hopefully I'll retire in 12 years and go raise goats in Mexico, but people who are just coming up the 25 year olds, the 30 year olds, people who just switched to GIS, my job is to make is to support them and make the and help them reach their full potential. Because there's nothing worse than oh, someone who's wasted potential, right? Because time is the only thing we really have. And it's the most it's the most precious it's the most precious thing we have. And to waste time, is, it's, it, that's just really sad.
1: So not, not all of us are lucky enough to have such a supportive person in, in our leadership team. What would you say to someone who's in the position where they feel like they need a mentor, they're a little bit lost, their career isn't tracking perhaps the, the way they imagined and maybe they're not even sure the way it should be tracking or where they want to go. How would you suggest they seek help, or where would you suggest they look for help?
0: Twitter, actually, Twitter is a good place to start. No, but if you're looking for someone like in, in your in your organization, if you find an organization you want to stay in, look for someone outside your team. Right? Ask, find someone who's a rock star in in, the, in their group, and just invite them to coffee. Everybody has time for a fifteen minute conversation, and then from there, you just kind of negotiate. It's you just kind of feel the relationship. If there's someone you really want to mentor, you whether it's someone you found externally or internally, and if you talk, if you meet with them, and something just doesn't feel right, accept that. Right? You may have really admired this person, but you just don't have that kind of relationship. So find so and so look for someone else similar. Just look for someone who ma- matches with you. Look for someone you feel you you can trust. Look for someone who's authentic, and just kind of roll from there. I mean, not everyone gives good advice all the time. I know I've given bad advice to people before. Understand yourself and your needs, and find someone who matches that. They don't have to be a geo person. They could be a data science person. They could be someone in the IT department. They could be someone in sales and marketing. You never know who your mentor is going to be until you find them.
1: I have a bit of a theory that we need we definitely need mentors in our lives, in you know, whatever facet of your life that, that you're thinking about. But I have an idea that we also need superheroes. because for me, mentorship is not scalable. It's that sort of very personable interaction, but superheroes are scalable. Everybody can look up to Spider-Man and say, wow. If only I was like Spider-Man. So I, I think we need a, a balance of, of these two things in our lives. And your initial reaction, you know, where should we go to look for mentorship, to look for help if our career isn't on, on the pathway we think it should be on, well, it was Twitter. And for me, Twitter is a great place to find these these superheroes.
0: You can always find someone who's you know doing awesome stuff somewhere on Twitter. If you dig deep enough, right? And then you can talk to that person about it. They're really, and 99% of the time, they're just completely open about it and just jazz to talk to you about it, right? It's like, oh, you're interested in this stuff? This is awesome. Let's talk about this, right? Dovetailing into the whole superhero thing is also another thing is having a champion, you know? Having someone in your work or in your life is willing to stand up for you when you're at certain points, right? It's like, yeah, this person's awesome. We should use them. This person's awesome. We should use this person. And that comes back, and that goes back to your network having I mean, champions that you interact with, having champions that you've worked with it really advances your career. If you have a champion, someone who can kind of set the runway for you. So all you have to do is kind of land it and then going, and that goes back to the whole first act and third act thing, being able to push people forward and making sure their, their landing is easy and their progression. Well, not easy. It's, it's prepared. They're set up for success. They're not set up to, you know, like I was, I, I felt like a bunch of times when I, when I was with my career, when I was landing, when I was landing a project, I was coming in hot with two engines out, and there wasn't really a runway that I had to make that myself before I landed, right? And now, and now that's, that's the idea, is I don't want people to go through that process. There's no reason to have that stress anymore.
1: So a lot of what we've been talking about, it you know, assumes that people have the confidence to reach out and to ask for help and to make that connection. And I could imagine something like imposter syndrome might get in the way of that initial interaction. Can, can you talk to us a bit about imposter syndrome and how we might avoid it or what we might do to to sort of get get away from it if we're suffering from it?
0: Yeah, yeah everyone. Yeah. I feel like everyone suffers from imposter syndrome. The stats say that seventy percent of the seventy percent everyone does, but I think it's deeper than that. I just don't think the people who say they don't really understand it. My personal in my own life, it's always been whenever I'm trapped or I'm isolated, is where my imposter syndrome gets really bad because I get stuck in my own head and I get that feedback loop for those voices. If you're not good enough, you're not smart. enough. You know, I come from a very poor area of, of the U.S. I come from middle, middle of nowhere, Kansas. And when I was in DC, I was always like, these people have better jobs than me. They have better, they have more connections. They have better education. How am I even here? What am I doing here? I should just go back and become like a financial advisor in Kansas city or something. It was really difficult for me to, 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 to break down those walls and until other people mentioned things and conversations or phone calls, I did. I realized I wasn't alone. And when you're not alone, that means there's a community, right? There's other people experiencing this. So it's not just me. There's other people I admire. I looked up to who I thought, you know, who I trusted and they're experiencing it too. So then just became about talking about it because imposter syndrome can't survive a good conversation. It doesn't mean it can come back. You know, we all get frustrated writing code or we all get frustrated doing analytics and you think, I don't need to do this. I can't do this. This isn't feasible. If you just have a conversation with someone, it calms you down. You can talk it through, and you realize that you are good enough, and you are smart enough, and you are capable of these things. But when we're isolated and in our own heads, we're put into a back office and made, made to do a project. That's when that's when imposterism really casts a shadow across you.
1: Is there any place in particular where where you look for community, or have you know focused on your network or building a, a community yourself?
0: When I was in D.C., it was it was easy to build a build a network because there's always an event right? there's always something going on either in data science or GIS. Like, it got to the point at one point is like there's so many things happening I was getting tired of going out. But now I be mean, with the pandemic and everything. It's obviously Twitter. Not every not everybody's on Twitter, but there's all sorts of people on Twitter. People you can learn from, people who are interested in aspects of geospatial you didn't even think about. Uh, there's this whole push for spatial finance right now that, you know, a few people on Twitter just kind of started pushing forward. And other and you know, and then the other thing I really get from Twitter is the excitement from students who have discovered GIS for the first time, and that's another reason. I also teach at Northeastern remote sensing classes and other things, and I get that passion from them too. And that kind of kind of feeds my beast. T- Twitter is a, uh, Twitter is the best place just to ask a question. No, you shouldn't be embarrassed by ask, for asking a question on Twitter. You should just ask if you have a problem. You ask it. Someone's going to respond to you if you just write hashtags right, and then that could create a relationship, and then you have a network node, and now you have more access to their network, and it just kind of grows. It grows organically from there.
1: I just want to highlight one thing that you said before that was really interesting, and it, it, it's worth spending a bit of time on here, I think. It, you said you, you teach classes because it, it, you know, it feeds your passion beast. I think that's the way you described it. And that's really important, right? Because it's not just a one-way street when we talk about leadership or mentorship. I mean, you, if you're the, the mentee or, or the person being led, I mean, you can give back in that way as well because you know, you're feeding them with, with your passion and, and your ideas and your enthusiasm.
0: Yeah, and and then they have that raw energy about it too, right? As you did. I'm I'm old and jaded about some things sometimes, and they bring it to me in a new light, right? And they're like, this is why I'm excited about this. This is why I find this interesting. It's like, oh yeah, that is awesome. Like uh, just case in point, I'm teaching a uh, automated feature extraction class right now, and students do all sorts sorts of stuff with it. They you know they count cars in parking lots, look at oil, look at oil drums and things like that. This one girl was like, she came to me. It's like, I want to find a I want to find playgrounds. Is it feasible to use this to find playgrounds? I'm like, it's totally feasible to find this about playgrounds. To find playgrounds. That's amazing. Let's, let's, let's get on a zoom call and talk about and talk this out. Right. Let's plan this because it's going to be difficult, but this is really exciting to me. Like, let's, you know, extract playgrounds from, um, from aerial photography and imagery and determine, you know that your house is close to a playground, or you know, put that in Zillow as part of, a, part of the analysis. How close are you to a local playground play, play or park? That's, that's a really interesting use for this uh, technology, and that's, that's something I would never thought of. right?
1: Yeah, totally. I'm always surprised by people outside the industry showing up, and they're not looking at it as geospatial. They're just saying, hey, I'm trying to solve a problem. It looks like I can use pieces of that and bits of that and some of this over here and mash it together and solve the problem. And they come up with some really, really innovative solutions problems a lot of the time you didn't even know existed or just the mere fact that they, they don't have that curse of knowledge <laughs> that, that we might have in the geospatial industry, right? They, they're just doing stuff and figuring it out along the way.
0: Yeah, because it's all new to them. There aren't any barriers. There aren't any walls. What, if they look at this technology and go, oh, I can extract parks or I can figure out the best places to go sledding or I can figure out you know, how far away public transportation is. And they're not hindered by by experience.
1: So at the start of the conversation, I talked about community, and we've mentioned it a couple of times now throughout the conversation. Could you talk to us a little bit about community? How are we doing as a geospatial community? Is it a healthy community to be a part of?
0: It is. I, 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 overall, it is, especially in because geospatial is part and parcel to IT, right? I think we're more healthy than greater technology community. I think we're a bit more inclusive and a bit more diverse than the, than the, uh, than the, than the, than the technology community is. There's still a lot of work to do. But uh, so this, you know, my story with this is um, I'm non-binary and I came out as trans uh, publicly like uh, about a year and a half because my my life is always too busy. I never get, never get room to breathe, right? I never thought about it and I just kind of kept it in. And then at some point I need to deal with it. And when I came out, I was really well supported within the community, within the geospatial community. I, I mean, I lost a few people. I lost a few connections on LinkedIn, probably lost about 10, Twitter followers. But in the end, I felt comfortable enough to come out. Now, a lot of that was because I had been established in the community. I was a known commodity, so to speak. People understood what I was about. This was just adding to that, right? This is something else about Todd. People who are um, younger trans people, women, uh, people of color, as they come up, they don't have that kind of established background, right? And a lot of times they leave the community because of, lack of a better term, toxic masculinity. We're very pale and male in the geospatial community. And you see women start to move away from the community in their 30s and people of color moving away from the community. And, you know, LGBTQ alphabet mafia folks a lot of them stay in the closet because of what geospatial is, the kind of how they perceive it. And that's not, you know, not everybody is awful, but they just don't feel comfortable coming out. And, you know, there's movements now within the community, especially within uh, like, like women in geospatial, geospatial women, black geographers. There's really no LGBTQ one yet, but it's such a, it's really such a small subject, it's subsect. it's hard to do that, of these people coming out in the community and just being, being, the, being their authentic selves within the geospatial community. The fact that we lose probably about 30% of our, um, of our numbers when they reach their 30s takes away so much of our creativity and so much of our diversity. In this field, it's all about creativity. It's all about thinking through problems and coming up with a creative solution, coming up with a better solution than the one before if we lose that creativity, we just become, the, the community can become stagnant and the technology becomes stagnant. And then we're releasing applications and doing things that work, that are just so stale and doing the same, th- doing the things the same way we did 10 years ago. And that's not good for anyone. That's just, that just stifles our creativity and innovation. And without creativity and innovation, the geospatial community is just a bunch of people making maps, right? So we need to really double down and think about how we treat each other if someone is different or someone is like myself, trans, or if someone is gay or someone's a woman, how we can support that person in our community and how we can take that person in, allow them to be their authentic selves and reach their full potential.
1: How do we do that? I am pale. I am male. (laughs) Give give me some pointers (laughs) here. Because a lot of times, if you're standing on the other side of the fence, it might feel a little bit overwhelming. It might feel like, doing nothing is the best course of action, because maybe you're afraid. Maybe you don't know what to do, what to say. Could, could you give us some sort of rough ideas of how people like me can help make things better?
0: Well, allyship is hard, right? Because like you just said, sometimes you want to help, but you don't know what to do. And so you kind of get in that, again, like an imposter syndrome feedback loop of like, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to stand here. The, the first and foremost the thing we can do is when you're asked to be on a panel or you're asked to present at, an, at, a, at a conference. Is to ensure that, it's a diver- that there's diversity. Refuse to speak at a conference if there's not at least thirty or forty percent women speakers. Better, better if there's fifty percent, right? Or refuse to be on a panel unless it's, unless it's representative. If you're invited to be on a panel, take a step back and allow someone, allow a person of color, some, a, a, a woman, someone else to take that place. And it's hard to do that because we all like the we all like oh I'm important and someone's paying attention to me. That really feeds some of our that, you know that really gets our serotonin pumping, but we have to take a step back from that. They may not be they, they may not be as experienced as you or maybe they're more experienced than you. They have as much right to speak what their concepts are and how they see things as you do. It seems like in the geospatial community with the, with, with our panels and our applications, we tend to interact with those who we network with and we tend to network with people like us. And that's like 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 the geospatial uh, women's geospatial database of speakers thing is so important. It's a tool now where people can go. Oh, I don't know any women who understand just uh, precision agriculture, right? But I can search this database and find ten women who understand that. Some of them have PhDs. Some of them are professors at like Purdue, and they understand it at, at a level that other people won't. So I'll invite them to my panel. See if they're free, or if they, if they don't know someone. By asking them, I get access to. I can get access to their network of other women who may be able to be on this panel. So it's really about just taking a step back and understanding that you're good enough and that you've you've you have succeeded. Your voice has been your voice has been heard. Allow someone else's voice to be heard.
1: Todd, I really want to thank you for your openness, for your honesty, for you've been incredibly generous with, with your time so far. This is the third time we're trying to record this, and I've I've enjoyed the conversation each time, and I've really appreciated it. <laughs> If someone is out there listening and they want to reach out to you for whatever reason, where where can they go to get a hold of you?
0: I'm prolific on Twitter, spatial underscore punk on Twitter. I also have a podcast I do with Silas Toms called The Mappiest Hour. So there's always that. Or, you know, just yeah, I'm, I also bounce around LinkedIn a lot. So I'm pretty easy to find on LinkedIn. Just Todd Barr GIS, and I should come up.
1: Hiding in plain sight, just like the rest of us.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... I, I I like being accessible, and my my DMs and my DMs are open on Twitter. So if you have a if you have a question or something, and you don't want to ask the greater community, ask me privately, and I'll help you out if I if I can, or I can I can point you in the direction of someone who can. Hopefully.
1: Thanks again, Todd. You're a real asset to the community, and I've really enjoyed talking with you.
0: Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate that.
1: I'll be back in a minute with a few points that I really want to highlight for you, and a few resources I want to point you towards. But before I do that, I need to say a big thank you to my sponsor, Pictera. So they really do help make this podcast possible. So if you haven't heard of Pictera before, they are a geospatial platform that lets you autonomously extract objects, detect objects and extract them from the spatial data that you have, from the imagery that you have. This works on satellite imagery, aerial imagery, drone imagery. And what it looks like in practice is that you identify these objects, you draw polygons around them and then say to the platform, hey platform, go and find all these objects and point it towards a data source. They have a bunch of these pre-trained detectors that you can you can build on and the, the idea is just so well executed and interesting it's well worth checking out i also know that they have a couple of plugins for the arcgis environment and for the qgis environment um so this is if this is something that you're interested in if you think it might make your working professional life easier might add value to it go along and check out pictera that's p-i-c-t-e-r-r-a dot i I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes to make it a bit easier to find them So I really hope that some of that conversation resonated with you. If you want to reach out to Todd, you'll find links to some social media profiles and a website and, of course, to the podcast uh, in the show notes. So please feel free to use that. And I know that that Todd would love to hear from you. Towards the end of the conversation with Todd, we talked about diversity in the community. And one resource that I use all the time on this podcast is the Women in Geospatial Speakers Database. So if you go to womeningeospatial.org you'll find a pretty amazing website and a really incredible speakers database filled with amazing people doing incredible stuff that have already said, hey, we are interested in speaking on these topics, which is incredible. So if you're organizing a panel or looking to create some sort of media around your please check it out. There'll, there'll be a link in the show notes to that. During the conversation, we talked a little bit about imposter syndrome and we talked about confidence. And I would just like to share a few thoughts with you on those two subjects. So imposter syndrome for me, at least is the thing that shows up when we think that we might not be good enough, when we're trying something for the first time and we're unsure if it's going to work. Imposter syndrome erodes our confidence, and when our confidence is eroded, we, we, t- we have a tendency to wait for somebody else to come along and confirm that our idea is good enough, that our business plan is going to work, that that question that we have in our minds is valid. The problem is, no one is answering unasked questions. No one can help you get to wherever it is that you're trying to go if they don't know where that place is. Mind readers are in really short supply these days. What I'm getting at here is that waiting to be picked is a really bad strategy. The problem is, picking yourself is really scary. Picking yourself means that you are on the hook, that your name is on the box, and that there's no one to turn and point to if it doesn't work out. So why risk it? Why risk raising our hand and asking that question? Why risk standing up and putting our ideas forward? And I guess, for me anyway, the answer to that is because if we don't, we put our progress our progression, our future in the hands of somebody else. I would also like to argue that by not doing this, by not contributing our ideas, our voices, the community is that much poorer. We can't build off ideas that we've never heard. We, we can't extend pieces of software that, that were never built. I'm definitely not suggesting that this is easy or that it's going to work out each time, but I am hoping that for your own sake, and for the sake of the community, for the sake of the diversity of the community, that, that you will pick yourself, that you will contribute. And that's it for another episode of the Mapscaping Podcast. My name is Daniel. It's been a pleasure being your host again this week. As always, you can find me on social media. Feel free to reach out to me. Check out the website, mapscaping.com. And if you have any suggestions, ideas, or, or feedback around the podcast, please let me know. I, I would love to hear it. Thanks again. Bye.